to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, Marty Bird is offered a chance to get out from beneath the Mexican drug cartel. Will new rivals and old enemies prevent their escape? We're talking about season four of the Netflix drama Ozark. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, love of my life, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us I is... I keep forgetting to add that to the script. I know. See how I'm I glad just, you add libid, but... I, I just threw it in, though, because I realized I didn't say it. You didn't want to break the internet. I didn't. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, my chocolate-loving friend, Laura Bricker. <laughs> Hello, Laura. Hello, and thank God I have a chocolatier friend who just keeps supplying me with chocolate and continuing this habit that I have. <laughs> you're I, I don't like want a to, mustache right now. I don't want to shame you, but it's all over your face. <laughs> you're like an old chocolate <laughs> ring ch- around your mouth. <laughs> I can't stop eating the chocolate. It's so good. Oh, my God. You're like Gustav from uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Are you going to get sucked up a tube later? <laughs> I hope not. I mean, who's going to fill in for me next week? Shout out to Anne, who's like what? She's like the head chocolatier at Lint, right? Yes. She's incredible. Master chocolatierian, yep. Yeah, she needs to send us some, like maybe as a uh, a gift. Maybe we can all have the like round uh, chocolate mustache yeah. next week. I'll name the I'll name the zit after her. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> that is a myth. Food does not cause acne. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the city trilogy, host of Strange Arrivals, and the Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Well, uh, Toby, where's your chocolate mustache? I'm really disappointed. Uh, d- yeah, not not sporting one tonight. <laughs> First of all, let's just go back to Laura for a second before we get started. All right. Laura has a colorful sombrero hanging up square behind her head <laughs> in the background. Yeah. She has a chocolate ring around her mouth, and she keeps picking up her giant glass of wine intermittently and taking sips. Everything uh. about this tableau is perfect for this podcast tonight. Do we not agree? <laughs> it's pretty Ozarky. yeah. It is pretty perfect. I am very, very excited. The only thing that you can't see from where you are that makes it even better but worse for me is that a mouse has died <laughs> in the wall next to me. Ah. And all I can smell is a carcass. Yeah. And so I had to order more of this thing called rat zorb. Yes. Oh, did you learn that in cat detective school? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I wish I did. But yeah, rat zorb is coming because that's probably why I'm drinking the wine and eating the chocolate to cover up the smell of the body yeah. that I'm sitting next to. I sometimes buy those little net bags of rocks that they sell, like at yeah, Home Depot. Yeah, I, I ordered one of those too. Yeah, those are pretty it's good. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad, but it's it's appropriate for Ozark because dead bodies. Yeah, everywhere. yeah, yeah, yeah. Left and right. Rat Zorb. Okay, we learn something every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that should bring us into our review for the evening. Shall we get to it, Kevin? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's roll the first clip. I don't give a good god damn what you or your Mexicans have to say about anything. Okay. But if you don't do this, their response is going to be quick and it's going to be brutal. We're just the messengers here. 
Omar Navarro has offered Marty and Wendy Bird a plan to finally walk away from their money laundering debt to the Mexican cartel. All they need to do is help the drug kingpin go legit and receive immunity from prosecution in America. The FBI, um, they don't make any agreements that aren't advantageous to them. I am aware that I will have to make some concessions. Concessions? Yes. Concessions. Navarro's nephew and heir apparent, Javier, complicates things by running violent operations against the feds at the same time Marty is secretly attempting to broker a deal with the FBI. I need to confess. Um, When my uncle first told me about your disagreement with Helen, my vote was to kill the two of you. No offense. Of course not. Meantime, the consequences of their earlier actions continue to reverberate. A private investigator is looking for Helen, the cartel's assassinated attorney. And Wendy's decision to have her brother killed has fostered resentment from their son Jonah, as well as pushed Ruth Langmore to switch alliances to rival poppy farmer Darlene Snell. How stupid are you? When Darlene's involved, no one is safe. Not you, not Wyatt, especially not Jonah. (laughs) And you're any better. You really think you can trust someone to shut a guy's dick off? I know what I'm doing. Jason Bateman, Laura Linney, and two-time Emmy winner Julia Garner return for season four, part one of Ozark. The series again finds the birds dealing with complications, large and small, to protect their family and get out of the money laundering business. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about significant plot points from Ozark Season 4 Part 1. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Kevin, uh, the showrunners here made an interesting choice to give us an opening scene of a car wreck with the birds. Mm -hmm. I have a question for you, yep. because given what we've seen in season four, part one, I find it a little bit to believe going back and watching that scene again and the happiness with which they're sitting in that car, that that scene is really true to what happens to that family. Do you think that scene is actually going to be something that is going to happen to this family? Yes or no? Is there some doubt that maybe it's a dream or something? I, you know, no, they, I'll say that Ozark has always been really good about foreshadowing. Okay. I mean, even in the credits between every episode, there is a graphic of stuff that's upcoming. I think by placing this scene here at the the start of the season, it really sets the stakes for the whole season and the next or the next part. You know, there's a part one, part two. They've broken the, the season up this way. We know that there is some additional harm that will come to them, and it makes us wonder if everything that they're doing now is going to be all for naught because someone is dead or they're all dead or they're just lucky to be alive or or whatever. So it, it ups the stakes for what is about to happen. Yeah, but why do the stakes feel so high then? Because, Toby, this is a, such a weird choice because this is a rare show for me, and I'm not going to, like, put this all on you guys because you might feel differently. There's only one other TV show I felt this way about, and it's The Americans, where this show has managed to become better and more suspenseful each season. I think it's better than Breaking Bad in that way. I think Breaking Bad actually became less suspenseful during its run because it actually became scarier, so the stakes felt faker. This show, for me, has become, because they keep layering on suspense and bringing in new troubles that feel realer, they've managed to meet layer on higher stakes. And for some reason, even though they show this scene first, which 
I would think would make me think like, oh, nothing's going to happen to Jonah and Marty and Wendy in this scene or this scene or this scene. I still felt those stakes, which made this scene seem like a weird choice to me. What do you think about the placement of this opening scene? Yeah, you know, I kind of, I guess, share some of your feelings in that it does feel as though it takes away. I don't know if anybody thinks that any of the Bird family are actually going to be killed in any of these scenes. Like you would have actually thought that if you hadn't seen that car accident at the beginning. But it does kind of remove a little bit of that suspense on the off chance that you would think that that would happen. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I mean, the one thing I thought sort of thematically was that it might be showing that their fates are sort of inextricably entwined, because I think that's sort of a main theme of the first part of the season, which they've started, but I think they leaned really heavily into it's all about family in these episodes. And I wasn't sure if maybe that was why they did this thing at the beginning, but it did. It did. There was there were some scenes where it's just like, eh, well, you know, they obviously make it to the van, so mm. it's not going to end up that badly. Hmm. So, Lara, I'm curious to w- about what you think about Wendy, because we definitely see Marty in some ways becoming more human this season, I think, and Wendy becoming more unhinged. <laughs> At least I feel that way. How, how do you feel about this character evolution? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, we see Marty. He's still wearing his same, like, clean-cut outfit. He's still got his, like, earnest sort of face, even when he goes to, like, help Jonah fix his mess up on his money laundering operation. And then we see Wendy. And she is, like, becoming more cold-blooded and more like the crime boss with every scene, you know, It's like where we see Marty's humanity occasionally still coming through with like the FBI agent's baby and like helping Jonah. We see Wendy very rarely showing what I see as like actual empathy emotion. You see a brief like she might feel guilty over her brother and the fact that she killed him. Um, We see her momentarily try to connect with her dad. But then we see her flip to using her brother Ben in the press conference for the rehab centers and making up total lies about him. Also, the cold, calculated way that she's approaching Jonah is really, you know, I don't want to say it's disturbing, but I mean, I think that shows where she's at with this character in that Jonah, her son, who, yes, by the way, is a money laundering genius. He's got his own program. He's got all his equipment. And she's just like, fuck him. And there's like no motherly anything left. And she's got this guy, the attorney that she brings in. And and she's very calculated in how she sets him up. And then she's like, okay, now that you're covered by like confidentiality, uh, yeah, guess what? We're money launderers. X, Y, Z, you're going to have to go to this meeting with the cartel. If you do not go to this meeting, he will be very angry and not just with us. Do you understand, Maya? If you won't protect my family, I won't protect yours. We see Marty, I think, still showing like, oh, hey, Ruth is here. We've cut her out, but I'll work with Ruth again because we have, you know, and you see Wendy, who's just like, talk to the hand, bitches. I'm in charge now. And she's frightening. And I'm curious to see where her character goes from here. I actually think Wendy is maternal. I think she's scary and maternal. I think you can be both. I think she thinks she's being maternal by being shitty to Jonah And I think she thinks she's being maternal by bringing her daughter into her power sphere. I think Wendy is 
power obsessed and maternal. And I think you can be both. And I don't think that makes her less fucking scary because I am fucking terrified of Wendy. Yeah, she's <laughs> one I don't want to cross. Um, I don't want to be in a dark alley with Wendy. Kevin, uh. what, what, what do you think, Kevin? Well, you know, I think that Ozark does have Breaking Bad in its DNA. You know, the story of a guy who's a professional and is able to use that talent in the underworld where he gets himself all involved. And, you know, I think that Wendy has broke bad. Marty has not yet. Throughout this, Marty kind of still seems optimistic. He he is uh, methodical in trying to figure out all the complications and pull them apart. But Wendy has, for some time, I think, sort of gone bad and embraced getting her hands dirty when they need to get dirty. Hmm. So, Toby, we're introduced to a new character this season who is kind of a yet another layer of suspense, a foil, uh, the P.I., the private investigator, former cop, who's brought in to investigate ostensibly just to get Helen to sign a piece of paper so that her ex-husband can finish their divorce or whatever. But then he starts to get suspicious and he is kind of a pot stirrer and creates all these side situations that the birds find themselves navigating. What do you think of this kind of side layer of suspense that the writers added to the show? Well, I'll be interested to see where it goes because, uh, so this is one thing I ran into with one of my novels is that uh, my editor uh, sort of convinced me to write out a character and his sort of rationale was, you know, the character's interesting, but are they driving any part of the plot? Hmm. So it just kind of feels like the P.I., he doesn't really drive much of the plot. Like he's basically there to up the pressure on the birds. And I, I just think the writers on the show are so good that I assume that he's eventually going to be more a plot driver. Like he'll have more agency rather than just kind of cruising around and making people feel uncomfortable. But I do think he is very effective. You know, he's kind of that let's turn these amps to 11 type of thing where, you know, things are really tense and then suddenly there's a knock on the door and there he is sort of insinuating stuff about how he knows they're somehow involved in Helen's death and that just kind of ups the tension level. But I assume there's got to be more to the part that he's going to play as we go forward. Get the fuck off my property. Yeah, all right. Well, listen, I, I had this really interesting conversation with the new sheriff this afternoon. Seems that the security footage at Helen Pierce's house somehow got wiped. Maybe you messed it up when you broke in there illegally. Yeah. Okay, I hear that. Or, uh, I don't know, maybe you got rid of some evidence. There are so many outside people adding to this that end up playing different roles than they think we will. So we have the FBI agent, Maya, who goes from being an instrument to an actor when she decides to go off script and arrest Navarro instead of letting the FBI do their thing. You have Javi, who's just supposed to be like the willing, obedient nephew of Omar who becomes really fucking scary and like the chief antagonist. He's sort of the um, Gus Fring of, 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 of the season now where he's like, you there, know. There's a character in, in, in Better Call Saul, same thing as the nephew, yeah. hot-headed nephew of the uh, cartel leader who is causing problems for the he also for rem- the protagonist. He also reminds me of Breaking Bad of that like knockoff Matt Damon looking guy who's just like goes around yeah. shooting people. Yeah. Um, so Laura, what do you think about this? Because they are layering on and, and you did send me a note that you don't care for the many, many, many tension layers here. Yeah. So I guess my feeling on the plot this season seems to be a little different than other people. And I feel like the over-the-top plot twists for me are making it harder to buy into 
the interpersonal dynamics in the show in a way that's like having me believe and feel that sort of visceral gut connection reaction to some of these characters that I felt in earlier seasons, because it just feels like some of the twists and turns and everything that's happening is more like, to me, like, I get the plot this season. I get the story arc. I don't think it's as strong a story arc as earlier seasons. And I think in lieu of that, we have all of these twists and turns. And I felt like these crazy shocker moments were more because the plot to me and the story arc wasn't as strong as earlier seasons because we're trying to wrap it up. And I get that. But it's more of a way to keep people paying attention. And for me, in the end, it just made me feel like not as connected to some of these characters in a way that I cared about them as much when they were in certain situations. Toby, what do you think about all the balls, all the plot balls up in the air? Because there's like 15 of them, it feels like. Yeah, I kind of felt like this was, it was almost like kind of a bridge in between last season and what I assume is going to be a pretty wild part two of this season. There's so many things kind of going on. It's like, what's going to happen to that poppy field? You know, what's happening with Ruth and Frank Jr.? I mean, there's, there's just all these these things that are that are kind of going on. It almost felt like like the middle book of a trilogy hmm. where you're trying to get from the beginning to the conclusion. So, and I think I thought they did that well. I mean, they do that while having keeping things interesting and moving quickly. But I do think they now have it set up so that you can get some resolution in a bunch of different places. But it's not exactly clear how it's all going to work out. I really like the way that they do the, uh, you know, the trauma stacking here where all the complications beget other complications. In order to solve one problem, you end up having to deal with another one. It's like you have to cross the street, but you don't have shoes. So you go to a guy with shoes and it's like, but I want the laces and you can't have the laces because someone just stole the laces and you try to cross the street, but there's a cop there who also wants the shoes and there's a car barreling down on you and the car swerves at the last second and it's the cop. But now your wife doesn't want to cross the street. It's like, that's what Ozark is. Hmm. Uh, guys, can we take a break for the business section right uh, now? Sure, let's just get right into it. Yeah, I'm just going to be like Marty going in to, <laughs> to saying, okay, hold on, Navarro. It's I'm just coming in. Yeah. Just business. Let's just be like straight up about it. Yeah, yeah. so speaking of laundering money, the after show <laughs> on the Crime Writers on After Show right now on Patreon. Uh, we're Toby's gonna... face. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like our paywall content being described as laundering money. He's like, here I am making a perfectly good book club podcast that people like. I'm spending time reading a book. I'm booking guests. We're having an intelligent discussion. And you just described it as laundering money. Well, comes in all forms. <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin. Well, as you know, on Thursday's show, we're going to be talking about season three of Chameleon Lost Boys. Yes. And that's a story about like something Wild cra- Boys. <laughs> it's, it's about something crazy it's happened. It's called in- Wild Boys. Yes. It's, it's about something crazy that happened in someone's hometown. Right? Yes. That's the starting point. Yes. We're all going to talk about stuff that happened in our childhood, our hometown, something that might make a great podcast. doesn't have to be felonious. Yes. But guys, think about something that might have happened that might be podcast worthy. From our own growing up. Yeah. From yeah. our own growing up. Like if we were to think back exactly yep toby's deep dive book club podcast is out and uh the book was called these are not gentle people yep. toby uh, remind us what your guests thought of this book yeah we all really liked it it uh takes place within you know the last 
six or seven years in South Africa, but it mm-hmm. it, it kind of feels like 1920s U.S. Uh, sort of racial violence and. There was a lot of a lot of parallels with Reconstruction, I thought. Yeah, that, uh, Reconstruction as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that whole kind of era, it's super, super interesting. It's a lot about, you know, the transformation in, in South Africa and how, how that's kind of changed the social order in some ways and not in other ways, and some people don't like it. Hmm. And lastly, I want to give a plug for These Are Their Stories. Yes. This week's episode, our guest is Anita Flores from the Care Talkers podcast. We're looking at the SVU episode called Fault. This is the one where Elliot could go and like rescue the kid, but instead he goes and rescues Liv, and the kid dies, and then there's a standoff, and she's supposed to shoot, and they're too close to each other. That's right. So they have to not be partners anymore. That's right. So, Kevin, can I mention something else about These Are Their Stories? Yeah. It was featured in Variety as a podcast you have to listen to. Congratulations. Thank you, Variety. Very exciting, Kevin. Wow. Very excited for That's your awesome. little podcast. Yeah. TV podcast you have to listen to. It was featured with some podcasts that I've actually heard of, too. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm going to cut it off there. This ends, <laughs> this ends. the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now. So I want to talk about one of the plot lines that they actually do do from start to finish in the season, because there are a couple of them. And that is one of my favorite story arcs is this is Ruth's plot to sell Darlene's heroin as an organic farm to table product to a celebrity chef uh, played by the actor Eric Layden, who's this very frenetic actor who I think does an incredible job portraying the celebrity chef. What makes you so good? This shit. It's different. Yeah, you don't gotta smoke it neither. It's pure enough to snort. It's homegrown, organic, sustainable. Farm to fucking table. Toby, what did you think about this plot line? Do you think it's realistic to think that a a celebrity chef would in fact be interested in peddling farm to table heroin? Do I think it's realistic? (laughs) Could you imagine a scenario? (laughs) I I don't think I've got enough information to make a judgment on that. But um, no, I think it's it was witty and clever. And then I also think it's, you know, it, it feels kind of important to Ruth's character to kind of situate her and where she is, you know, that she's sort of successful in this small way in this place that she doesn't really like and would love to get away from but is not taking any steps to actually get away from and so seeing him who has walked away uh and made a life in chicago and again i you know is the payoff a little bit further down the line i mean you get a little bit of that when she's trying to get uh wyatt and three to jump on a boat and cruise up the river and get away that way but you do think that in Ruth's sort of long play is eventually getting out of Ozark mm. and going somewhere else. Whether that actually happens, I mean, it seems like that's part of the sort of tragedy of hers that she's sort of destined to be there. Like she's a creature of that place and is, you know, not going to be able to leave. But it's an interesting addition to kind of the forces that are at work with her. Yeah. Every time she learns something, I mean, everyone says she's good at what she does. And every time she learns something, she seems like almost on the precipice of success. And then something always fucking happens. Mm -hmm. Like she sells the load of heroin, but it's the load of heroin that Marty needed for the pharmaceutical company. Uh, You know, she sells it to the chef and that's going to be the new success thing. But then he overdoses and he, 
then wants out of it. So then that fails. Like, it's like she's always like right fucking there. And then it's the birds that somehow derail her chances of success. But it's also Marty who always comes in and helps her and saves her. How many poppy fields did she think that chef was going to do? I mean, I have two questions. I have two questions about this, this last line of discussion. Number one, did anyone else have shades of Pulp Fiction when the overdose was occurring and then all of a sudden he vomits? I was like, oh, this is like Pulp Narcan. Fiction. Narcan, yeah. 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 And number two, I would like to talk about the organic poppy fields and whether the plethora of bodies that is getting buried out there because Darlene keeps blowing people away is contributing to the organic nature of the heroin. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Those flowers are going to be extra red. They're going to be extra juicy. They're going to be extra. Every other scene. Oh, look, it's Wyatt and Ruth are out burying somebody else. And I'm like, good God, like they are good at digging holes. But my goodness, like, is there a section of that farm that is no longer like filled with bodies? Yeah, they got to buy their own funeral home. They need an incinerator. Is yeah. what they need. So, Kevin, it is rare for a TV show to cast kids well, right? Yeah, especially yeah, TV show that's yeah. going to last a long time. So here we have Sophia Hublitz or Hublitz as Charlotte Bird, Skylar Gardner as Jonah Bird, and I think you can throw, um, you know, Julie Gardner is not a kid, and Charlie to Hannah's Wyatt is not a kid, but they're younger actors. But let's talk about uh, Charlotte and Jonah because they're both cast when they were relatively younger actors. They are playing the children of the birds. How do you think that these younger actors are doing? Because they are up against some powerhouse performances in this show. Well, I think that they do well. I mean, yeah, it's sometimes hard to cast a child who's going to, well, you know, maybe not grow into a role uh, or find out that, you know, they don't really have the acting chops at 12. They did when they were, you know, seven. And some shows, I'll just say, like, who's the boss? Like, really kind of suffered, right? But Blackish went five for five when those kids. Wait, you what know are you that? saying about Alyssa Milano right Alyssa now? Alyssa Milano was great. Who's the who's the kid? The brother? Oh, a little little kid. Yeah. Yeah. Forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Miss me with that. So, yeah, I mean, they, they do a great job. They're surrounded by some real powerhouse actors, but we can't talk about any of them without talking about Julia Gardner. Well, we'll come on to her in a second. Okay. So, Toby, you actually made an observation about the actors who play Charlotte, which I share. Can you talk about that for a second? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she feels like she's doing an impression of her mom the entire time. <laughs> like She's got the same kind of cadences with her speech and expressions and stuff. It's really good. Don't you find the scenes, too, where Wendy is like trying to pal with her to be not warm, like the sort of a performative warmth that ends up being... Sad, like, and creepy. Like, I, that's what I, I, there's one scene in the show where she wants to, like, take her outside for a drink. This is around the time that Charlotte decides she doesn't want to go to college and, like, Wendy's fine with it and Marty's not. And she takes her outside and, you know, the, we've seen them drinking wine at dinner and stuff, but, like, she gives her a glass of scotch. It's very reminiscent of all these scenes you see where it's, like, a father and son. Like, here, son, have my cigar or whatever. Like, bonding, right? And Charlotte's just like, I guess I have to trust you on this, mom, that this is supposed to taste good or what whatever. And it's like she's trying to bring her into her power circle. And you just kind of wonder what is going to happen to Charlotte. I mean, Laura, do you think that Charlotte ultimately is is trying to ascend to become Wendy or Wendy is trying to get Charlotte to ascend to become Wendy? I think Wendy is trying to get Charlotte to ascend and Charlotte is seeking approval and she is good at what she's doing right now. And compared to what Jonah's doing, Charlotte is like the good girl of the family right now. But 
you know, we still see sort of glimmers of Charlotte when we know that there's like more to her than ascending to be the next Wendy. We see compassion and we see like this concern when she goes to meet with the daughter of the lawyer who got her head blown away by the drug cartel. Yeah. We see her go meet with Wyatt secretly at the farmer's market. Hey, what's going on? So like there's still part of Charlotte that is not damaged by being around Wendy. But I think that Wendy, much like Marty, is proud of the fact that, hey, Jonah's money laundering at 14. Wendy's like, hey, look at Charlotte. Like she doesn't want to go to school anymore because she wants to work with me. So it's like that same sort of dynamic and that same sort of relationship. But who knows? I, I don't feel like Charlotte is as cold-blooded as Wendy, but who the fuck knows in the show? Because the next thing you know, she could turn around and blow somebody away. I mean, that's the way the show goes. I just felt like she was in those two scenes with Wyatt and with uh, Helen's daughter. She's being very manipulative. She's I mean, she was carrying she out was, orders, right? Right. I mean, she had a goal in mind. She wasn't doing it sort of altruistically or to like, let's but catch she's up. Still and, human. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, Maybe. I, I Maybe. feel like I feel like she's transitioning. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she's shedding her human skin. So why are we all rooting for Jonah so hard? I mean, <laughs> he wrote us that he's rebelling by turning into Marty, right? And we're all yeah. Are we rooting for him for the same reasons we root for Marty because he's like miniature Jason Bateman? What do you think, Kevin? Well, I don't know if I'm actually rooting for Jonah. You're not. I mean, you don't want to see him get killed in a car accident, but. He's he's taking a stand because he's, he's the things he's upset about. You got to agree with the parents. You know, I, I wouldn't kill my brother, but in this world, yeah, Ben was the problem, and he was a loose end that needed to be taken care of. So that makes sense for the the family. So I'm like, you know, you can't hold the grudge against your mom just because she's the queen. I hold the grudge against pin. the mom. Well, okay. I don't then think I it was right you, to kill Ben. Okay. I think you're cold blooded for saying that, Kevin. All right, I'm standing by my. I'm not. I'm not rooting for Jonah. How's oh, that? There you I go. am rooting for Jonah. Uh, Toby and Laura. Are either one of you rooting for Jonah? The way I'm rooting for Jonah. Yes. <laughs> I love Jonah. I love the fact that Jonah is so smart. I just said this about his sister, but like Jonah, the reason that he's rebelling is he's like, "Fuck you! You killed my fucking uncle." fuck you, you've done all this other stuff. Hey, I'm pretty fucking smart and I'm going to go help someone else because fuck you. But he does it in such a way that he's like level, he's measured, he's mature. And, you know, I am I am rooting for him because I, I feel like we've watched Jonah grow up yeah, in this show. Literally. <laughs> and, and literally yeah. we have watched Jonah grow up and he was always like the decent kid. And he used to hang out with the old guy that yeah. lived in their house. And, but- he always was smart and picking up tidbits of information. And now we're watching this culmination of Jonah picking up all these tidbits of information over these past three seasons. And we're seeing like, what is the effect of being a smart kid living in a family that's doing all these illegal activities when a smart kid is not missing a single trick that happens? And here is the outcome. Yeah. I mean, Toby, Jonah's resentment toward the family started with the old man in the basement and how the family was using him. And living in his house and basically ignoring him. Remember that, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I think whatever with Jonah. It, sometimes he's kind of keeping it on the down low. Other times he's shooting out all the windows in their in their living room while the parents are gone. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I, I think the I, I, you're trying to we're trying to do family analysis on the birds. It seems like 
their situation is a little unusual. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But he does, like, these little ways in which he's rebellious are, like, potentially fatal for the family, which I could see as a parent would be frustrating at times. Yeah, so I don't know. I thought I thought another interesting scene was when uh, Charlotte finally kind of, like, snaps at him and it's like, get your shit together. Yep. Um, I thought that that was a sort of low key but important scene because they they always seemed like they were sort of simpatico in terms of we've got this completely fucked up family, but we'll stick together. And now it's just like Charlotte having to choose between her parents and Jonah is sort of choosing her parents. And so, you know, Jonah's a little bit isolated with Marty kind of being compassionate and stuff. And also giving him the room to kind of do what he wants to do, which is sort of be apart from the family. But, you know, as I said earlier, I, it just seems like this whole first part of this season is really about families. It's either things that are happening within families or things that are happening between families. Uh, but those are sort of the distinct units, which has a lot of sort of the dynamics of the plot. I completely agree with you. And what I think is the most emblematic of that is that Wendy keeps trying to do these performative family things, like have everybody sit down for dinner and yep. everyone's going to be together. And she keeps trying to like send Jonah to his room and like you're not going anywhere. All these performative family things, right? Which obviously don't fucking work when your family is laundering money for a Mexican drug cartel. Like none of that bullshit's going to work. The real family dynamics play out, though, in the real like very sibling. That, that fight you just described between the two siblings was a really typical sibling fight just about a subject that is completely alien in most families. Right. But it was a very, the dynamics were like super sibling. The fights that Marty and Wendy have feel very like familiar marital tension. They're just about a thing that no marriages have. Like we are not laundering money for a Mexican drug cartel, but those tensions and the way they feel. <laughs> I'm sorry, I completely agree with you. And the way that like we try to deal sometimes with our family tensions by being like, we are all going to sit down for dinner together right now. Like, I I just I, I could not agree with you more. OK, two things we have to talk about before we wrap up, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Wyatt and Darlene, they go from uh. mackin to getting whackened. Okay, that didn't, whack didn't quite. That didn't quite work. I feel nah. like the whacking happened premature. They go from mack to whack. Anyway. Anyone else shocked by, uh, A, I'm always shocked by their mackin'. It's disgusting. And so many it grosses yeah. me out. Yeah, no, I actually have a note that I just, I can't, I can't get into the Wyatt-Darlene romance. It's gross. Then he proposed. It's gross. I don't believe it. But here's the thing. Ozark is a little bit like Game of Thrones this season, mostly because of Darlene, because she freaking shoots everybody and blows them away with her shotgun. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we need Darlene and her shotgun around, and the fact that both of them get, like, knocked off so abruptly is like, oh, um, so what's going to happen now? So what's going to happen now? I would like to say, P.S., I hope Ruth and the son of the Kansas City mob take over the farm and become lovers and business partners and take on the world. That's my hope. But I don't think Ruth needs a guy with no dick. I, I don't think that's what Ruth yeah, needs. Well, they said lovers. it was bigger than before, Rebecca. They said it was bigger than before. That, uh, might, that might be a joke. Yeah, Toby. It might not have been I big, don't know. sorry. It might have been real. Toby, it seems like you're into the Darlene uh, Wyatt romance. You made a, You seemed like you were upset when I said that it was gross. I, you know, again, gross, I, wouldn't, Toby. I wouldn't necessarily characterize myself as being into it, but I just think we're, 
you know, if the genders were reversed, I don't think the reaction would be so strong. I mean, it I would just be feel, strong for me. I still think I, it would I just be feel like we see like older actors with younger yes. actresses constantly and, it's still gross. <laughs> and it, they flip it in this stage and uh yeah they're consenting adults it's it's all good it's a different it's a he's it's, like 18 but he's, he's also 18 good lord he was gonna he's go to college be, like 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 in this show it was like a few months ago that he was planning to go to college remember i know but you don't have to go to college at 18 i, I feel like he's a, he's <laughs> gonna way, be a he, non-trad he's one also, way or the other he's also very giving you know <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, I don't, you know, I, what's interesting about it is the effect that it has on Ruth, yes. right? And how it complicates her life. That was an effective part of the plot, you know? Yes. I mean, it yes. did, it did end up with a lot of conflict within Ruth and with stuff that she was trying to do. So yeah, I, you know, I didn't have a well, problem their, with it. Their, their partnership. I mean, I didn't have a problem with it plot wise at all. I don't think it's a disgusting plot. I just think that the they, they include it for a reason. Part of that reason is to unsettle the viewer, which it does. Obviously, their partnership unsettles Ruth's life. Their deaths break her. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, were you shocked by their deaths, first of all? Um, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. But yeah. Were you it's shocked by how the, the breaking of Ruth Langmore? Look, we've talked about a lot of characters, and I'm going to sound catty. None of them are as interesting as Ruth. Yep, agreed. Um, the way that Julia... That's not catty, that's just true. Julia Gardner is great in this role. When she gets confronted with something where she's like up against something and she gives these silent looks, she looks both angry and vulnerable all at the same time, better than anyone and just when you think she can't play the role any better, she comes in at the, the scene at the end with the shotgun screaming at the birds. And I've never heard anyone give a line, you know, at the top of their lungs like that, that came off as sounding real and not just like being histrionic over the top bad acting. Do not hurt this man. Or what, your whole fucking family will be murdered, huh? If you want to stop me, you're going to have to fucking kill me! She is just so mesmerizing, and I mean, it's great what they do with the alliances. They keep uh, shifting. Remember the end of last season? Ruth wanted Marty to have Frank Jr. killed. Instead, he kills Ben, who's her boyfriend, so Ruth aligns with Darlene, and now Darlene aligns with Frank Jr. She's gone, and Frank Jr. is now like Ruth's last ally. So it's just part of the the great stuff that the writers do by changing who's partners with whom and what the different complications are. But yeah, I mean, Ruth deserves her own show, but she's probably going to die at the end of the season. There are probably 15 minutes of Ruth staring at a cookie jar in this season. And I could watch her staring at a cookie jar. Breathing through her nose. More than I could watch most actors do anything. It was unbelievable. I feel like Julia Garner is such a fucking amazing actress. But I, me personally, when I watched that last scene where she comes in and confronts the birds, I felt like they had her go a little over the top with the reaction. And to me, that didn't feel as authentic. However, the scene with the cookie jar where she has Ben's ashes and they're in the cookie jar in the goat thing on the counter in her trailer, which she still lives in, despite the fact that now she could move anywhere. And she's still living in this very, like, just sad, you know, place. That cookie jar scene was her at the top of her game. The scene at the end with the birds, to me, I felt like it was like they coached her to the point that she was overacting to the point that, for me, 
the impact was less than the cookie jar scene. We will never agree on that, Laura Bricker. Never, ever, ever. Yeah, go away. I, I agree that's, with you, that's Laura. That's where I stand. Thank you, Toby. I'm, with, we will. I'm 100% with you. Wait, Toby agrees with me? Oh my God, Toby, what do you have to say? I want to know what Toby says about this because he agrees with me. Oh, I just agree with exactly what you said is that that just seemed, you know, I was watching that. I was like, oh, this seems like one of those stupid Sean Penn scenes where he's like, like pouring out the emotion <laughs> in, in a way that didn't seem authentic to Ruth. And also I felt was just, I just feel like she's a better actor than that scene showed. I that Yes. Pe- people can just, I mean. Thank you, Toby. Freaking out is not great acting. And I think she's able to be much more subtle and complex than she is in that scene. And it's just screaming and whatever. You know, I, I, I get that she's. I never agree with you. Never, ever. Well, ever. that's fine. Her that's screaming. Pro- it's not the, it's not the her, only. It's not probably the only thing. Her either. screaming had range as fuck. Watch the scene again. Oh God. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Ozark season four, part one? Of course, maybe if they want to do that, they should have watched seasons one through three of Ozark first. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this chapter of Ozark? So I'm still a thumbs up for Ozark, but I'm not as enthusiastic a thumbs up for season four as I have been for the past three seasons. And and to me, it's because it feels like we're trying to wrap it up and we're trying to make the plot all tied together. And I feel like the first three seasons were so strong in the plot that there's some things in this season that don't really feel authentic to me, that don't really connect with me. But I love this show so much. I love Marty Bird. I love Ruth. Julia Garner, I think, is like absolutely fucking amazing. I love the fact that even though these people are like laundering money, they sit down and eat their pasta and drink wine at dinner and act like nothing's going on. I just feel like this season in particular to me felt like we were trying to come up with ways to keep the plot exciting by throwing like a million plot twists in the air for this first half of the season, which to me felt a little bit more like lazy plotting than actually advancing the story forward. And that sucks because I fucking love Ozark. But this season to me just didn't feel as good as the past seasons. Toby Ball. Yeah, I you know, Ozark's one of my favorite shows. And I, I just feel like it very consistently delivers. I really like this first half of this season, you know, part one of the season. I can kind of see where, where Lara's coming from. In some ways, it felt like it was setting the stage for what should hopefully be kind of a tour de force part two of this season. Uh, but I think like even in kind of doing all the machinations to get everything kind of moving in different directions to set up, you know, the conclusion, I thought it was still really absorbing. The writers just, they, the plotting is to my mind so strong. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a, it's a very, it's a very big thumbs up for this and all other seasons of Ozark. Kevin Flint. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. Uh, I just love everything that uh, Jason Bateman and uh, Laura Linney and Julia Gardner are putting into this. Give them all the awards. That's what I say. Keep winning Emmys. They deserve it. It's a really great show, and I can't wait to... Uh, it's it's so weird whether they do, like, it's season four, part one. I love it. They did that on Mad Men. It's actually a contractual thing about the way actors get paid. So, like, oh, for another... Instead of giving you a, another season and a pay bump, we're just going to do... We're going to break these two seasons into two different parts and 
sent them out at different times like it's a big deal. Anyway, I can't wait for part two of season four. Yeah, I can't wait for it either. Huge thumbs up for me. I like Ozark better than Breaking Bad. I'm sorry. I just do. I think the women are written better. I think the characters are fleshed out better. I think the tension is more grounded. I think the children are written better. I think the plotting is less scary and more suspenseful. I love everything about this show. I love it more and more and more each season. It is the rare show that grows and gets better and gets broader. The setting is gorgeous and interesting. The people are gorgeous and interesting, and the acting is unparalleled. Huge thumbs up for me for Ozark, season four, part one. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. First responders in Seymour, Connecticut, rushed to a house fire last weekend. The reported cause was accidental. The homeowner said he started the blaze while using a flamethrower to melt snow on his property. The man admitted to igniting the house's siding with this extreme winter shortcut. After all, why use gasoline to power a snowblower when you could just use it to create a stream of fiery death? No. For those wondering, civilian-grade flamethrowers are available in 49 of the 50 states. No background check either, by the way. They're used for controlled burns in forestry and in farming, but using them to melt snow is not a hot idea. So, panel, this homeowner was not using the right tool for the job. What are some other home maintenance mistakes he was making? What do you think, Laura Bricker? I I don't even know where to begin with this, but it's reminding me of during the COVID times, the early COVID times, when I decided to order these brushes to clean my floor that would attach to a cordless drill. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just going to say that was not a good decision. And I couldn't walk for like a week because it was really bad on the back. So Ah. that is something I would not recommend doing that I think this man might have also tried. Toby Ball, what do you think some other home maintenance mistakes this guy uh, made were? I'm not sure how relatable this is for people in other climates, but uh, using dynamite to break up those ice dams on your roof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Kevin? Uh, He was using a machine gun to make Swiss cheese. Oh, yeah. Fun fact, we had a friend who had one of those home uh, flamethrower blowtorch thingies. He used it to kill weeds on his property, and he started an underground Uh, fire. Yeah. (laughs) Underground fire? Catches roots. Yes, he caught some roots on fire. Uh, There was an underground fire, and the fire department had to come out and put the underground fire out on his property. I forgot about that, yeah. right. We should probably end it on that note, but before we do, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and share their house cleaning woes. How can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say hi. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On after show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we hide all the cash we've made laundering money for a podcast cartel. Shh. 
<laughs> On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. As well as pushed Ruth Langmore to switch alliances to rival Poppy Fartner to rival... I was fucking almost perfect with my read. That organic copy makes you really fart. I have been practicing reading and I almost fucking got that one. (laughs) Jesus Christ. 